today's homily, we're going to be in John chapter 20, Behold and Beheld. In the prologue of John's gospel, we are told that no one has ever seen God. It is only Son himself who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. From the beginning of John's gospel, the idea of bearing witness, of testifying, of sharing the abundant hope and justice and radical love of who God is and God's beloved community is pictured as a relationship. It's pictured as Jesus, God's own son, reclining on the chest of God. It might have looked something like this six pack. I'm kind of down for that, but it may have also <laughs> been something with a few more stretch marks. We don't know when we think about God, what type of body God has. And indeed the miracle of the incarnation would be that God shows up in all kinds of different bodies and lives and perspectives and has empathy for each and every one of us. But however you imagine the divine chest, the divine bosom, the divine self of God that Jesus comes to rest on, it is from this place and space that John starts talking about what it means for us to share God's hope, to embody God's hope. It is not apart from, but rooted in this intimacy and connection. Our passage for today starts much later than John's prologue in verse one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. In John's gospel, Easter begins in darkness. Darkness, which in John's gospel indicates that it's harder to see where God is at work. It's harder to perceive what God is up to. And John's gospel, often when it is in the environment dark, it is this clue that people are struggling to see God. They're struggling to know how to connect to God's presence in their life at this moment. And we can understand why Mary Magdalene, having just a few days earlier been traumatized at the cross, she is there with Jesus' mother and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and the beloved disciple, as this person whom she has loved and followed and befriended is bleeding out before her. It is this agony and trauma, and it is only in John's gospel that we find Mary coming to the tomb alone not only in darkness, but by herself, presumably something that many people even in this day and age would not want to do, let alone in her culture. This is quite odd. And she gets to the tomb, carrying all of the weight of whatever darkness might mean for her, and she sees that the stone has been removed. This is likely not something she was expecting. And I wonder if it just felt like too much for her to process with all that she was carrying. Darkness is not hard to find in our world. 
We look to yet another school shooting in Tennessee and the injustices carried out against Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson, who were expelled while their co-conspirator, Representative Gloria Johnson, remained. We look to the vicious legislation demeaning, dehumanizing, and scapegoating our trans community, progressing in state houses all over the country and even just a few miles from this very spot. We look at weather patterns that seem to be growing more erratic and doing more damage to communities and to the environment, and we know the connections this has to our incessant greed and exploitation of the good earth that God has given us. We know the struggles we try to hide, whether substance misuse, crippling debt, or hollowing loneliness. We know the relationships that once felt like safety and home that now filth riddled with betrayal and doubt. We know the communities that once felt like safe harbor that now are tumultuous and an upheaval for us. We know, we know, we know what darkness looks like, what it feels like. We've been living it. What heaviness do you find yourself burdened? What terror trembles your step? What grief are you wading through? What threat looms large over you? Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark says, the problem is this, when despite all my best efforts, the lights have gone off in my life, literally or figuratively, take your pick, plunging me into the kind of darkness that turns my knees to water, Nonetheless, I have not died. The monsters have not dragged me out of bed and taken me back to their lair. The witches have not burned me or turned me into a bat. I have learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. Things that have saved my life over and over again. So there is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. I don't think the community that wrote the Gospel of John probably would see this quote in that same way. That's not how John sees darkness. But for whatever reason, as John tells this story, John is clear to point out to us that Easter Sunday does start in darkness. And so I think it leaves us at a place wondering what lessons can we learn even from this upheaval, this unsettledness that we find ourselves in. The verse continues in two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. This was the first time in reading this gospel account that I noticed Mary initially does not go into the tomb when she's there by herself and she sees that the stone has been rolled away she doesn't go in which to me would seem like the most natural thing to want to do in that moment and perhaps darkness is what is at play here whether it is the emotional darkness the heaviness the trauma that she's still working through. She cannot bear to go into this place that would be this reminder of all the pain that she has experienced. 
Or perhaps it may be the literal darkness. Tombs in those days did not have a light source within them. And so if it is still dark, she literally may not be able, if she did not bring some source of light to go in there at this time and to see her way through. For whatever reason, we are not explicitly told, she leaves the site of the tomb and she goes and connects with community. There are times in our life when we do feel so alone, when we feel so betrayed, when we feel like no one can understand us, when you feel like you're just trying to keep your head above the quicksand that is slowly enveloping you. And I love that Mary's move here is to realize this feels too big for me. And I need to connect with other people. I need to find some strength that I don't have solely within myself, but as I unite with others, perhaps I can reconnect with this really hard place and space in my life and find the strength to process through it in community. When we're afraid of the next seemingly impossible step, how might we too ground ourselves in community? How might we allow community to do alongside us what we were perhaps never meant to do on our own? I've been experiencing uh, in my personal life uh, lots of upheaval and unsettlement, but also lots of joy and goodness intertwined within. And I have found it necessary multiple times in the last few weeks to just check in with community, to find some centering, to know like, I'm not like out of my mind here, am I? How, how, how should I proceed? Can, can you give me some feedback here? Can you just spend some time listening to me ramble? And thank you all for choosing to do that today. <laughs> what does it look like for us with whatever darkness we find ourselves wrestling with to reach out to others. Our text, well, not our text, rather, I was reminded as I was talking with um, a dear friend of mine of this quote from John Philip Newell from The Rebirthing of God, which talks about this dynamic of the way we relate to one another and make our way through difficult situations. A compass, then, is used to determine the relationship between two points. The related word, compassion, is about honoring the relationship between two people or between one group and another and remembering those who suffer. It is about making the connection between the heart of my being and the heart of yours and following that connection just as we followed the compass in descending the mist-covered mountain, even when we are filled with doubts as to whether we are moving in the right direction. Years ago, I was in Southern California and on retreat and went with some uh, people who were on retreat with me. They, they had been to this retreat site before. And so they said, we're going to take this long walk, but it's going to be worth it because there's going to be this incredible view at the end of the walk overlooking the beaches. And when we got there to the end of our long walk, all I saw was nothingness of this the weather, this fog, this overcastness that had just sort of come up from the sea. And I thought, ah, yeah, so worth it, like, so worth it. 
but my companion, uh, who has a depth of spirituality and realness to her and lots of lived experience, uh, began to share freely that um, she had gone through seasons of depression and seasons of betrayal, much of it uh, incited by institutional church that had once been a place of belonging for her and had felt more and more like a place of betrayal. And she said she remembered talking to some trusted voices in her life and feeling like it was never going to end and them saying to her, depression sometimes is like this. It is like this weather that comes in and rolls over all the beauty and goodness in our life and makes it hard to see. And those friends were not invalidating her experience, but they were saying, but keep walking with us because we're telling you there is goodness underneath all this and this weather will not last forever. It did last forever that day that I was there, <laughs> but I was able to go on retreat there again a few years later and was able to see the view and it was pretty nice. I'm still not sure I would have uh, taken it, but nevertheless. In John's gospel, we see salvation as beloved belonging. A few weeks ago when we were talking about the woman at the well together, John 4, 42, uh, the Samaritan community that Jesus finds connected to her say, we no longer believe just because of what you, talking about the woman at the well, said, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man, Jesus, really is the savior of the world. It's the first place in the gospel of John where this language of savior is used and this othered community are the first people to say, we see in Jesus, we have experienced in his life. It is that their time has been for them a resting on Jesus' chest. And because of that experience, they have come to know a belonging with someone in a community that they never would have imagined they could find. And all of this happens in John's gospel. Jesus declared the savior of the world before the cross, before the empty tomb. There's something about what God in Jesus is doing in the world that offers us this rescue, this healing, this wholeness as a belonging in community and beloved community with one another and with the divine. Our passage continues back in John chapter 20. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. There's been this kind of running competition Olympics thing that's happened between Peter and the beloved disciple. And the beloved disciple gets to the tomb first. And so when that happens, he saw and believed. Verse nine, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their home, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. We are told in a passage that we've not read that the disciples, when they go in, see first Peter, then John, that there are these linen wraps that are left there, that the body is gone, but the, what the body was wrapped in still remains. 
in a part of our scripture that we won't read today, Mary will encounter when she looks in, seeing some angelic hosts, some messengers of God who are in there. It says nothing when Mary looks in about seeing these linen wrappings. And the next time that we see the beloved disciple looking in, we are not told what it is he sees. So it's possible that he saw what he had originally seen, which was the linen wraps. But right after this, we're gonna be told that what Mary sees in there are angelic messengers. And we don't know what it is. It seems like an odd thing to leave out if the result of whatever it is that he saw was that he believed. You think that that might be something John's gospel would have wanted to tell us. But perhaps, again, it is this invitation into the mystery and the beauty of encountering God that what's left unknown to us. Perhaps it is one of those things that we could say, we can't really tell you, but perhaps in just whispers of the transcendence and the imminence of all that the beloved disciple encountered, but what he saw led his heart that had felt hurt and disillusioned and grieving to begin to trust again for the very first time, to begin to open itself to God and to God's beloved community and say, maybe, maybe we can do this again. Maybe I don't have to stay stuck here. Verse 13, they said to her, women, woman, why are you weeping? This is now the angelic messengers saying to Mary Magdalene, who's outside the tomb, but they're inside the tomb. She said to them, they have taken away the Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. John's gospel is the only one that mentions that Mary is weeping. And it mentions it again and again and again. We are meant to see the nuance, the texture, the weight of the grief that Mary is experiencing as she is weeping over and over again. It's like these cascading waves of grief that are relentless that she's experiencing uh, in this time. In John's gospel, the first person to encounter the resurrected Christ is a woman and the focus is that this woman is free to express and process her grief. And when Jesus sees her, he doesn't say, cheer up, I'm risen. He joins her. He asks her what's going on in her life and what these emotions she's expressing are all about. He becomes a safe place for her to anchor to. I see in this passage that Mary symbolically is beginning to start to lean her head in towards the beloved chest of Jesus, that she is starting to find that perhaps here is someone who cares and might be open to connection and to community.
in the short film After Sunset, Dawn Arrives, which I highly recommend and is definitely not safe for work, uh, we encounter Juan, a 65-year-old who is grieving the loss of someone dear to him. And he also seems to be grieving something that seems just beyond his reach. And the opening scene, you see him wandering through a building, kind of almost feels like the bowels of this building. And he pulls a curtain away and he looks through and he's kind of watching life happen on the other side of this window. And you feel the longing and you feel the regret and you feel the alienation that Juan finds himself encountering. And just on the other side of that window, there's ballroom dancing and you happen to notice, or at least I did, that all the people who are ballroom dancing seem to be queer uh, and are definitely all at least in same-sex pairs at the very least. Um, and Juan is just left in this space. But as this short film progresses, uh, Juan in another part of town encounters someone that he recognizes from having glanced through the window as being one of these dancers. And he sort of sheepishly even brings it up, says, Is, are you a person who goes to you know, such and such ballroom? And the young man lights up and he's like, yes, of course, I, you know, I, I love it. I've, I haven't seen you there, do you go? And then Juan says, oh, no, 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 no. And you can tell Juan, who had just sort of peeked his head out for a moment, is now retreating back within himself. But Ken, this younger man is persistent and encourages him that he should come, that it would be a lot of fun, that he would enjoy himself, that it's a safe place. And eventually Juan steals up the courage and he goes there. And you can tell as he enters that he is lumbering in, that he is stiff and that he is awkward, that he feels unpracticed at any of this. And Ken, as soon as he sees him, runs over to him and embraces him. And begins to almost pat down, massage his body, is just trying to say, loosen up, it's okay. Check in with your body, this is a safe place. And it becomes a transformative moment for Juan. He realizes that his life can never be the same again. John's gospel is ultimately an invitation to experience. In 1 John, which many believe to have the same author, the community says it like this, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What they have seen, what they have heard, these are words of experience. The, it's, it's only from that place of their experience that they're saying, we want you to get in on this joy. We want you to know that the salvation we're finding isn't a proposition or an idea or, or, or anything like that. Instead, what it is, is a sweet fellowship, a sweet belonging, a community where we find more wholeness, where we find our true selves revealed. We want you to have that and to know that. Checking in with our passage again, verse 16. Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and she sees him and in Hebrew says, Rabboni, which means teacher. I almost failed Hebrew, so I have no idea how to say that word. Um, but 
It's interesting to me, and I think not a coincidence, that in John's gospel, the way she recognizes that this person, who may have originally been an angel, and then she thinks is a man, the gardener, and then is starting to realize is the son of God, Jesus, which also seems to me to be an echo of the story of Genesis, where Jacob wrestles with a man, angel God. Um, but nevertheless, uh, when Mary Magdalene uh, hears her name, in John's gospel, Jesus has already said that his followers, his sheep, they hear his voice and they know how to respond. They know how to follow. And when she hears his voice, you could imagine a child who's been in utero and who comes to know the voice of the person who is carrying him or her. You can imagine this sweet, intimate connection of knowing, oh, that's something, that's home. No matter what else is happening, I can tune into that and it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. This do not touch me is a way of Jesus saying things are not going to just resume the way they had been. I'm not here to hang out for the next 40 years. Yes, I have gone from life to death to resurrection, but I'm going to be moving on. I will be ascending to heaven, and the best is still yet to come. Don't get stuck in the past. Will you take a step forward into God's good future? Richard Rohr says it like this. The last experience of God is frequently the greatest obstacle to the next experience of God. We make an absolute out of it and use it to strengthen our ego and self-aggrandize and self-congratulate. And then, of course, nothing more happens. We aren't born again. We are born again and again and again. Accepting and acting upon that principle takes a lot of letting go. And if we aren't willing to move out of our comfort zone, it won't happen. All great spirituality is about letting go. And so we are invited to experience what is it like to be held by God's love while God in Jesus beholds each of us fully? How does divine accompaniment into the places where we're estranged, ashamed, confused, and hopeless allow us to let go of patterns that have not served us well? How might divine accompaniment reconnect us to our truest desires, intuition, dreams, and joy? How might we come and see Jesus at work in our lives this week? Where do we need to lean in to community to move forward? In the musical, The Wiz, the iconic song, sort of patterning the fall of the yellow brick road, but taking it obviously to a much greater level, uh, is ease on down the road. And it's a song that is just full of joy and light and hope. But if you pay attention to the lyrics, it's also a song that is not in denial of the very pain and challenges and grief that we all must and do face. 
And yet it is an invitation in this story paralleling the Wizard of Oz to Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and to the Cowardly Lion to not say stuck, but in community together in beloved belonging to find a way to ease on down the road. Cause there may be times when you think you lost your mind and the steps you're taking leave you three, four steps behind. But the road you're walking might be long sometimes, but just keep on stepping and you'll be just fine. Now there would be the whole thing, but I can't go for that. We're not done, thank you though, thank you. Appreciate it. So pick your left foot up when your right foot's down. Come on, legs, keep moving. Don't you lose no ground. You just keep on keeping on the road that you chose. Don't you give up walking because you gave up shoes. We just got one more. <laughs> and well, there may be times when you wish you wasn't born and you wake one morning just to find your courage gone. But just know that feeling only lasts a little while. You stick with us and we'll show you how to smile. Yeah. So what new mercies are we seeking at the dawn of dreaming with God again? What might it look like for us to invite others into our healing journey? What step of hope might we take together? Because ultimately for Mary Magdalene, her testimony, the very first person, this woman who is the apostle to the apostles, the first person through whom the gospel is proclaimed, she does not say what Jesus has told her to say. She puts it aside. So that's really great, Jesus, and maybe that can be great for another council someday. But what I'm going to say is that I have seen the Lord. I've experienced God in community in a way that is opening me up to trust again, to believe again, to take one step forward, even though I might be afraid out of my heart and mind, I'm trusting in something bigger and more buoyant to support and carry me through this resurrection life. Let's pray. God, from the beginning and ending, and beginning again, you see our stiff stances as tension builds in our being. May we exhale, may we soften. May we allow ourselves to rest in the divine accompaniment. Let us sink our lives to the divine heartbeat of love. We step into greater love for ourselves, one another, and for holy mystery. We ease on down the road with companions by our side pointing out God's grace where we've yet to glimpse it ourselves. We pray this in the name of the God who is ever on the move, the one who calls our name in resurrection love, and spirit who guides us in unsettling times. Amen. <laughs>